So this evening, I would like to look at right efforts, which is one of the Eightfold Path. And in right effort, you find the four great efforts. And personally, I'm very keen on the four great efforts. And uh, you don't find them in the Zen tradition. And when I found them in the Pali text, I was very excited. Because for me, the four great efforts are about awareness of the conditions. So in a way, we develop mindfulness. But in a way, the mindfulness is not an end in itself. We develop the mindfulness so that we can, in a way, creatively engage with the conditions. This kind of becoming more aware of the inner and outer conditions. And what I find interesting about the four great efforts in terms of the Buddha's idea is that it's about transformation during the conditions, but also before the conditions. And that I find is interesting. Before even something happened, the Buddha said, look at it, work on it, transform it. So the four great efforts, I mean, I'm going to just say in a more modern language, sustain positive states once they have arisen. Enable positive states that have not yet arisen to arise. Let go of negative states once they have arisen. Prevent negative states that have not arisen yet to arise. I think we all want that. <laughs> so the first one. Basically, the Buddha is saying, sustain clarity, calm, stability, openness, wisdom, compassion, once it's there. And you know, in order to sustain it, we have to see it. We have to be aware of it. And I think often, we, I would say, our positive state of mind, we take for granted. We think it should be this way. I should be peaceful. Peaceful is normal. So if peaceful is normal, then I don't notice it. But I think it's very important to be aware. I have a moment of wisdom. I have a moment of compassion. I have a moment of clarity. And it, once we, that's what is interesting. Once you're aware of it fully, then you can rest in it. You can be present to it and appreciate it. And what is interesting is that is enough to sustain it, that actually we are aware of it in the full organic experience. But it doesn't mean that we grasp at it. And this is what you can experience. When you sit in meditation, we generally, when we sit in meditation, we generally wait for something special to happen. So we wait, wait, ooh, this is it, this is it, awakening, next second. But because we get excited and we grasp, it goes. And I would say this is, in terms of the retreat, it's very interesting. Time to time in the retreat, we have moments 
of quietness, of clarity, of peace, of joy. And in a way, I would say our practice to sustain this state, actually the thing we have to do is nothing. And then it sustains itself. That's what is interesting. If you feel really quiet and clear, don't kind of, generally we start to grasp at it and we start to comment it, we start to describe it to somebody, how we're going to tell about my best friend, he had a good, now I have a better one than he, and off we go, and then he goes. And so if you're really quiet and clear, to just be with it, not do anything with it, just to be so aware of it, that you do feel a little different. It's very quiet, it's very clear. And in a way, I feel sustaining those states is doing it the same way a mother would hold a child. If she holds too tight, it's going to cry. If it's too loose, it's going to fall. And so in a way, it's interesting when we have those experiences, those positive states of wisdom, of compassion, of being aware of it not doing anything with it, but in that not doing, there is a sustaining, in that holding very gently. And so, and in terms of daily life, I think it's really important to be aware, in this moment, I am fine. In this moment, I am at peace. And to really know it, because this is what will make a difference if you experience a difficult state. You won't go straight away in, I am always in a difficult state. Because you really know that maybe earlier in the day, you had a more peaceful state. And it's the same here in the retreat. Maybe your morning are better. You sit the first sitting in the morning and no pain, and you feel really, yes, I'm really there. And really to know that, to really be there. And then after lunch, you might be a little kind of, you listen a little to the guiding, surface a little, surface again. And you're not always like this. It comes and goes. So really, to really, I think to me, the sustaining is actually the being aware of it in a way, accompanying the state, flowing with the positive state. Many years ago, when my niece was kind of young, she used to come and stay with my mother, who lived downstairs from me. And so one day we had worked in the garden, and then we were resting after cleaning up in the living room, and just listening to some Schubert. And it was about 6.30 in the evening, and suddenly my niece, six years old, burst in the living room. She sees us sitting there, she hears the music, and she said, I am going to dance. So she go, went to dance, you know, and it was not the Bolshoi, but you know, <laughs> it went on, and it lasted 30 minutes. And the only thing we had to do was to be present to it just to see it, she would check if we were looking. And we, we were looking, we were really there with her, with the music. It was a 
wonderful moment, beautiful, loving moment. And it was so, we were so aware of it. And he could sustain it through that awareness with no grasping. And then, after 30 minutes, she disappeared, she went down to eat. But what was interesting is the next morning she came back up. She wanted Mimi to put the music on again. And she wanted to recreate the moment. But the music was not right. It was very interesting because the conditions were not there anymore. Then you have the next one, which is to enable calm, clarity, creativity, compassionate response. Before there are a reason. What are the conditions that we can develop, that we can cultivate, so that calm, clarity, compassionate response are more likely to happen? And to me, this is very much part of what we do here, the, the cultivation of the street trainings. We don't do them as end in themselves, but because over time we experience that they help us so that more likely those states, those qualities can happen. And I think at that level, that's what we're cultivating, the tools of awareness. So each day we introduce something different, the breath, the body, the sound, the thought, the loving kindness. And to see that actually, again, this is not an end in itself. This is a tool of awareness that we try to cultivate here. And through cultivating here, we can feel that often more likely the openness, the calm will happen. But it is the same in daily life. And so in a way, in daily life, we have to remember we have these tools in our hand. Like the breath. I think what is wonderful with the breath is that it helps us when we go back in our daily life to be more aware of our potential, that each moment of life is a moment in which our creative potential can manifest. Also, when we be more aware of the breath, we can be more aware of the connection with everything that breathes. So it helps us to feel less separation. But also the breath is really helpful in terms of calming to really kind of calm the body, to really, in a way, kind of helps us to, <laughs> I mean, we can feel it during the retreat. And we have to, in a way, remember it in daily life. You know, when you go about your day, and suddenly you think, I am busy, I am busy, and you kind of get what I call the gasping mind. And then you, if you become aware of that, then you stop, you watch the breath, and the thing goes down. And recently I was reading a book about uh, how people are in emergency. Very interesting book. And they were saying that one of the things that the firemen do is actually do the breath. They kind of taught a special type of breath so that when they are in an emergency, their body doesn't react in a way which generally paralyzes or kind of dulls their senses. But with the breath, it helps them to, in a way, be more there and not kind of lose it, in a way. And also you have the short breath that has been developed in the mind 
mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for depression, when three times a day you are asked to just do a three-minute breath, first minute, you come back to what is going on now? You come back to the whole moment. Next minute, you come back to the breath. Third minute, you come back to the whole body. And then you go back to what you do. And they found that very efficacious. So we have, in a way, this tool of the breath to help our conditions. Then there is a body. To be aware of the body really grounds us. When we kind of so caught, as Sharda was saying, about kind of all kind of thought and abstraction, and we get lost. And then we come back to the body. And I think the body is really good as a focus when we come back from work, after a whole day work, and so many things happened, and you have so many things else to think about. And just to come back to driving, just coming back to holding the key to your house in your hand, just coming back. And many years ago, somebody told me a wonderful story about she, it was in a school, and in the bathroom, like we have here, they had a hand hot hair dryer, you know, like you used to find. And then the teacher said, this is not fast enough. We need something faster. We are busy people. We have lots to do. So they put kind of what we have here, a uh, tower. And then the, my friend with a meditator noticed this teacher who kept using the hotter hand dryer was still there. And she would just do this. And finally she asked her, why do you still use it? She said, oh, it's a wonderful moment. You know, this is a way for me to ground myself. I'm just aware of the hot hair on my hand. And this is just my little meditation time. And so in a way, the body kind of grounding in the midst of this activity. Then you have the listening. And I think the listening is to really try to be with sound in a different way. Because nowadays, in our daily lives, there is so many sounds, and sometimes we can be quite sensitive to it. And recently, I was in New York. It was so noisy. It was incredible, really incredible. And then you sit in the New York Insight Center, you know, 11th floor, and the door window open. It's so noisy. You sit there. It's kind of, you can barely hear yourself think or meditate. But it was very interesting to just be there, to just, on top of it, I had my sciatica. So sciatica, sound, and I was so fine. I was just very peaceful because I just heard the sound as sounds rising and passing away. I did not take them as they are there to bother me, to annoy me, and you know, they do it on purpose. I could see this was New York. This was both not the middle of the Sahara. <laughs> so that's what was happening. And recently, I was teaching this meditation, and there was this young woman who was extremely sensitive to sound. I never met somebody so sensitive to sound. It was so painful for her. She would wear earplugs. But she tried the one day of listening meditation. She tried it to just listen to the sound differently and not to think that they were there to attack her. And she said it was so much easier to be with the sun. She could take a little, the earplugs out. So I think to try to see 
kind of using that tool of meditation. And then tomorrow we have the feeling tone to recognize pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And then to see how can I be with these different tones without grasping, without rejecting. Again, a different relationship. Or the feeling sensation. We'll do the guided meditation of how to feel inside of our body the emotional sensation, but just staying in the texture, not going into the naming, the story of it, but just how does it feel before I name it? Is it heavy? Is it changing? Is it, how is it? And then generally we feel so much more spaciousness and we can be with it in a different way. This is what I do uh, when I am about in my daily life. I, I, recently something happened. I went to buy plants. I'm a gardener and there was a little misunderstanding. In France, sometimes I'm kind of not totally there for what they want me to do. I'm not totally in tune sometimes. So the lady was a little upset and I felt upset because she was upset. And I could feel, mm, I could feel a little mm, in there. And instead of starting to think, oh, this is terrible, I am terrible, she is terrible, I will never go to this shop again or whatever, I did not do this. And I just observed, how long is this going to last? This little, how long? How long? So I kind of observed it. So for an hour, it was a little strong. Then after that, it only came when I thought of it, and then it went. And then within uh, the next day, it was gone totally gone. And so in a way to, to see that with this tool of awareness, we can be differently with our emotional sensation. Then there is a loving kindness that Sharda did today. And again, this is a tool of awareness to in a way to look at ourselves, to look at others in a different way, to look beyond the images, the abstraction, and to really reach out to the human being who is suffering, who too wants to be happy. And recently I was teaching, there was this uh, young lady again telling us this wonderful story about loving kindness meditation. She said she was going to have a meeting with her boss and she was very afraid that it was going to be a tough meeting because it's kind of tense and it's kind of difficult and a bit overbearing. And she was kind of like, you know, I'm going to this meeting, this is going to be awful. And then she thought, how can I help myself to make the condition better before the meeting? And then she thought, loving kindness. So she did loving kindness for half an hour. And then she went to see the boss and it was such a different experience. Because when she went to see it, she felt he was a human being. Instead of, you know, he's such a terrible person, he's going to be awful. So she did not bring any negative energy in the room. And actually the meeting went much better because she did not add anything. And then at the last day of the retreat, I will uh, present the question, uh, Corinne style, for those who want to try it out. What is this? And what I find is interesting with this method as a tool of awareness is to question, especially question our thought. Because we have a tendency to have a thought and we think, as Sharda was pointing out, 
I am my thought. And then in a way with the questioning, it's kind of learning to kind of, is this true? If you start to think, I am always stupid. I mean, is this true? Are you stupid every minute, every second, every hour, every day, every year, forever after? No. Time to time you might make a mistake. So in a way, this questioning I find is very useful to kind of, in a way, dissolve the rigidity and bring a little more the flexibility. So in a way, it's kind of looking in terms of this right effort, this great effort, what is it that helps? And then to remember that you can cultivate the tools. I mean, it will help only if you do it. It is something that you have to do, you have to cultivate. Then you have the third one, dissolve, let go of distressing state, of difficult state which appears. And in a way, in order to be able to let go, we need to be aware that we are caught, that we are lost. Uh, some time ago, we were in South Africa teaching, and I phoned home. And my mother said, we've been robbed, you know. Little village, and we robbed, and we in South Africa, nothing happens to us. But that's the way of the world. And then I started the retreat, teaching the retreat. And after a day, I suddenly see myself. I see myself going to mode going round and round, two things I'm thinking. First, security. How can I make the house secure? Security, security. And the next one, revenge. I'm thinking of putting some kind of mouse trap <laughs> to get them the next time. <laughs> then I kind of look at it and I think, uh-uh, security, no point. I mean, I am here, I can't do anything. And revenge, this is not such a good idea. <laughs> so I just let it go. So in a way, I think the letting go, we have to be careful with this letting go. The letting go is not saying, let go. The letting go comes from the awareness. And in a way, this is what you are developing here during the retreat, is the awareness, which suddenly you will see yourself, ah, I am doing this, to kind of suddenly see it in its whole modality, and you will see, I don't need to do this. So it's not like you're not pushing it away. You're just seeing the pointlessness of it, and then it just goes. And in a way, is to be, I think what is important with the letting go is we have to be aware that we are grasping. See, in order, we let go because we, gr we grasp at something, that's where the pain comes from, that's where the distress comes from. So in, in order to let go, we need to open up. But we need to see, ah, I am grasping. And I think in order to let go, I think this is very important to understand the grasping process. And so just to give uh, an image, so let's say this is precious to me. This is gold or diamond, or it's the greatest truth in the universe, and I have got it. This is very important to see. Grasping, I have got it, it's mine. So because it's mine, 
because it's precious, I hold on to it like this. And if I do this for any length of time, two things happen. The first thing, I get a cramp in the arm. <laughs> and so often when we feel tension, look, often we're grasping at something. But something worse than that is that if I grasp at this in this way, I cannot use my hand for anything else. So in a way, I am stuck to what I am grasping at. And to me, this is what is the most dangerous in terms of the grasping. And I would say the meditation, the letting go, is opening the hand, the releasing, so then the thing can be moved and can be used. So in the process of grasping, you have grasping goes with identification. Then you have solidification. Then you limit yourself to what you grasp at. And then, this is the worst, you magnify it. And that's why generally it's hard to let go because we magnify what we grasp at. Once I phone a friend and I say, how are you? And she said, life is terrible, everything is terrible, life is always awful. And I said, what happened? Nothing happened, it's always bad, it's always terrible. <laughs> so after 10 minutes, finally she said, yes, yesterday something really painful happened. And then we could address it. But always, what can you deal with always? Nothing. So in a way, the letting go is a letting go of the always. is a letting go of the exaggeration and the proliferation that comes with the grasping. So in a way, when we suffer, look, often there is this grasping, there is this proliferation into abstraction, there is this exaggeration. And so I would say letting go is also what I would call creative engagement. Grasping, make a stick and magnify, exaggerate, proliferate. Creative engagement is kind of, ah, this is difficult, but how can I creatively engage with this situation? Some years ago, when my uh, grandmother was still alive, once my mother left and I had to take care of grandma for two days. And so in the morning, I go to kind of you know, help her to get up and give her breakfast and everything. I go to the room, I walk about the room, and then I see that there is a lot of feces all over the floor. And I did not see it, so I walked into it. <laughs> and I spread it everywhere. <laughs> and I can see the moment, this is difficult, this is distressing. <laughs> and I see that to exaggerate and proliferate is really not going to help. <laughs> and I think, okay, how can I creatively engage with the situation? I take grandma away, I clean her, I give her breakfast, then I go and clean. And it took me less than an hour. And, that, and I realized then that if I had gotten upset and shouted at grandma and get so upset, it would have lasted the whole morning. But just creative engagement. And I was able to deal with it with wisdom, with compassion. So in a way, to see that in a way, the, the, the grasping 
in a way, stops our creative potential. And the letting go lets our potential, creative potential come out. I think it's kind of to see grasping, we reduce and we exaggerate. Gra creative engagement, we open. And then there can be a creative response to that moment. Then there is a last one, work with conditions. So negative states that have not yet arisen do not arise. To me, that's the most interesting. And again, how can we do this? By being aware, by being mindful of the conditions. And then to me, this is really like kind of, for me, the meditation is an exploration. It's kind of really seeing more and more the flow of condition, inner condition meeting outer condition. So in a way, we go of an exploratory journey, not just inside, but really inside and outside together. And then we start to see that when, what is it that creates negative state? Generally, you have the trigger, you have the cycle, you have the conditions, and then you have contributing factors. And so in a way, we have to become aware of all of this if you want to be able to cultivate this false effort. Trigger. What is it that triggers us? Because you see, that's sort of the thing. We're not always upset. We're not always sad. We're not always whatever. So what is the trigger? Generally, there is a trigger. Something triggers us. And so it's kind of in a way to realize, what is it? Is it frustration? Is it when we kind of, there is an obstacle? Is it certain conditions? And I remember when I was first married to Stephen, when he went away to teach on his own, after three days, I would get into a terrible funk, a really, really bad funk. And then he would phone, and I would be really mean on the phone. So that was not very, you know, useful. <laughs> Definite negative state. It happened once, it happens again, and I thought, what goes on? Finally, I see something is going on here. How does it work? And so the next time he goes, I look. First day, fine. Second day, fine. And then third day, I see the thought arise. I see the trigger. I see the thought. And I know, ah, if I continue with this thought, this is going to be fairly nasty. So then I do creative distraction. I go for a walk, I go and read a book, I do something positive instead. And what was interesting, I only had to do it twice, on two occasions, and then it totally went. Never happened again. To such an extent, I can't even remember the trigger thought now. It's all gone. And that's when I realize we think these thoughts, these triggers, are more powerful than us. But we give them the power. If we see them, if we don't feed them, then they really, they go, totally go. And then we have to look at the contributing factors. This to me is very important. For example, notice, 
you are about going about your day and suddenly you think, I am busy. And to me, this busyness, this idea of busyness, I have this to do, I have that to do, this busy mind, what it does as a contributing factor is dissolve compassion. Somebody is, I am in pain, sorry, three days, possibly, but right now, I really <laughs> can't care, can't care. And I think it's very important for us to see that this mind of busyness, this one tunnel vision, really, in a way, dissolve any compassion, any awareness of the other. Then you have the tiredness. Tiredness as a contributing factor to irritability, anger. I used, long ago, I used to find myself looking for somebody to pick an argument with. <laughs> so I would look and generally I would find Stephen and I would kind of, you know, try to pick a kind of an argument with him and he would look at me and say, but what's the matter? What's going on here? I've not done anything. <laughs> and then I thought, why do I do this? This is a bit strange to do this, not very kind of pleasant. And I realized I was tired. And then when I was tired, generally, I became irritable. And then I became aware of my tiredness and I went to rest. And then I was a much nicer person. <laughs> so anyway, to see what is a contributing factor, you also have, when you can't sleep, if you cannot sleep, this is a really very difficult contributing factor to be peaceful, to be kind of not stressed. And then to also notice our limitation. What is our emotional, physical, mental limitation? But also condition, conditional limitation. You know, we, we want to be compassionate, we want to, to have creative response, but we need to have enough energy. We need to be well enough. So sometimes, in a way, of course we can be heroic, but all the time we can't. So we have to see also, I think this is part of that knowledge in terms of this distressing condition not arising, knowing our limitation, accepting them and in a way creatively engaging with them. And in a way to, to look, what is it that helps me? What is it that helps me to, to be stable or not, to open or not? And then at such level, I think it's very important to, in part of the meditation practice during this retreat, is to really look at the vipassana aspect, at this looking deeply, at this inquiry, because this is what will transform, which will make it so we will be less caught, less distressed. And for example, impermanence. Stephen was talking about death. And to me, this is very important, this kind of being aware of death, being aware of impermanence. When I was uh, a nun, being in a Buddhist monastery, everybody talked about impermanence. And I thought, oh yes, impermanence, you know, like a bit like fa fatalism. Oh yes, you know, the, va the, the vase is broken, especially if it's not mine, who cares, it's impermanent, you know. Yes, it's impermanent. But it did not have much effect at all on me. <laughs> and it's only, in a way, 
when I saw my father die, when I saw that last breath, that then I knew impermanence. But to me, what was interesting at that moment, this compassion arose for life, for people in my family, for anybody in the world, that all their life rested upon a single breath. And then I could not but have compassion for that fragile life. But also if we look at impermanence, we also see the other side of impermanence, the other side of death, is the fact that things change. And to me this is an amazing gift, the gift of change. The thing that we're not fixed, we're not solid, we're not always like this. So in a way we don't need to give up on ourselves. But of course, the change might take some time to happen, but they can be changed. I mean, there is this uh, interesting story about uh, somebody I, uh, I met recently, Noah Levine. You know, I mean, he had, uh, although his father was Stephen Levine, he had a very difficult uh, childhood and he became kind of aggressive and he started to drink and drug and then he ended up in a juvenile hall. And you know, he was not a very nice person and he did not feel nice about himself. And then, you know, he has one phone call and he phoned his Stephen, Stephen Levine. And he said, you know, Dad, what can I do? And Stephen Levine said, just watch the breath. And you might think, what? In that situation, what can this do? You know? It's kind of terrible situation. How can, you know? And he said it made, he had nothing else to do. He could not do anything else in that moment. He was really stuck. And he thought, why not? <laughs> and he just watched the breath. And it really made a change. But to me, it was good that, in a way, what Stephen Levine did was not to think, my son is hopeless. I can't, you know, he can't. He just said, watch the breath because he knew that he could have an impact. So that in a way to see, they can be changed. I mean, the change can take time. And to me, this is also the other compassionate aspect of impermanence, to have the faith that I can change, somebody else can change, and give that faith to each other. Then you have the dukkha. Stephen has talked a lot about dukkha. But you know, dukkha also kind of means unreliability. You know, that things are unreliable. And often I feel we, in this world of modern conveniences, very interesting, our reaction. I lived in Korea for a long time, and then things were really not reliable. Electricity, water, in those days it was not reliable. And then, you know, you come to, to back to the West and you press the button, electricity. You know, you kind of put the shower on and there is hot water. In Korea, I had hot water only once every two weeks. So it was, ah, hot water, it just comes there. But then when we have problem with electricity or hot water or whatever, we get so upset, you know. But I mean, things are unreliable. And it's kind of like, not that things are changing all the time, but they can change. And I think if we live knowing things can change, 
then we're not fighting. We're not kind of fighting with reality. We're just kind of, you know, flowing with reality. We're kind of creatively engaging with what arises, what passes away. Then there is also in Dukkha this idea of unsatisfactoriness. And often there is this kind of little, little idea within us that one day we'll find something which will give us lasting satisfaction. Maybe a house, maybe a partner, maybe a job, maybe meditation. Ah, maybe if I meditate long enough, then this is it. One day I'll have the permanent state and I'll be above it all forever after. I don't think so, but you can try, you can try. <laughs> if I remember when I had my first book, my first book was coming out. Every morning I waited for it and I thought, this book is going to change my life, you know. I'll feel happy all the time and I'll be so, you know, proud of myself and, you know. So every day I waited for the book and finally the book arrived. I had breakfast. I opened the book. I looked the front. I looked the back. Lasted two minutes. <laughs> and then back to, you know. <laughs> so in a way, it doesn't mean I did not appreciate it, but I learned. I could not invest so much in it. And I think also dukkha dukkha, the pain, to me, to know pain, to accept it, to know it, not to make more than there is, but to know it is two things, you know, that it's painful and that it is isolating. And from that arise compassion. Compassion for my pain, which makes me be isolated, but compassion for other people's pain, because it's painful and isolating for them too. So to see that this Vipassana aspect of the meditation is to kind of to experientially know this so that the compassion will arise, this creative wise compassion. And the last one is no self. And this no self, I think this is something will, it's not easy to get, but at the same time, I think this is a lifelong journey. But it doesn't mean that it's a long a journey of disappearance. It's not a journey of eradication. That I, at the end of the retreat, there will just be puff of smokes on the cushion, you know, and you all disappear. <laughs> but it's more to see ourselves again as a flow of conditions, that we cannot reduce ourselves to anything, any of the condition that forms us. So we have this kind of inner thing, inner condition, this organism meeting the outer organism and this relationship and this flow of conditions. And so that, there is that idea with the no-self, that we experience ourselves as more a kind of a process, as more like a kind of like a kind of this process, this flow of condition moving. And in a way, it's kind of talking about creatively engaging with this flow of condition. And through that too, and to me this is very important about the meditation, that by becoming more aware of our flow of condition, we also become more aware equally to the flow of condition of others and also to the world. So that by diminishing 
this kind of like really this self-centeredness when I just think about me, what I want for myself, and I open more to what is possible for this life, sharing others' life, being as aware of my life as others' life. And to me, this is one of the things about meditation. And sometimes we can, you know, experience it as a, what I would call a meditative state. You sit in meditation, and sometimes it happens on the middle of a retreat, and suddenly you feel your heart totally open. And the way I could describe it is that you feel that you have no problem with nobody. Nobody at all, you would say. Not those ones, no, no. Everybody, everybody, you open your heart to everybody. And to me, this is what the meditation helps us to do. And I think if we are like that, less self-centered, a little more other-centered, aware, creatively responding, then it's less likely that distressing, closing, fixing state will arise. So that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Oh, okay, the, the, the trigger, the cycle, because generally there is a cycle of habits, I would say a pattern, so the cycle. Then certain conditions, certain conditions which give rise to the trigger in a way, kind of, kind of, and then you have some contributing factors. And that's a kind of a quick schema of what happens. Yes? You uh, uh, seem to find value in the concept of no self. And as I was listening to your husband the other day, he said, <laughs> doesn't matter. That's not important. Uh, are, are you, in dis you in disagreement on that, or am I misinterpreting what he said? Uh, can you repeat a little the beginning? I missed that. Oh, possibly in that moment he was talking ab about the past, so he was not focusing on no self. But I think it seems to me that at some point in the retreat he's going to talk about the fabrication of self. He's going to talk about that. All oh, right. Oh, okay. You, you spoke about the importance of not self. Yeah, yeah. Sure, 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 sure. But what I mean, you see, again, we kind of what, <laughs> what we're talking about. Uh, it goes back to Stephen will speak about this at longer le length later. But the thing is that it depends the way you look at it. You see, often people have this idea that no self means there is nobody. So in a way, you know, I must get out of the way. 
So at that level, yes, you know, the, the, the talk about there is a self or there is no self, then that's kind of like a kind of irrelevant in terms of is there a self or not a self in terms of the kind of the, the question uh, with the Buddha. But in terms of like the Buddha talks a lot about how to cultivate the self. And at the same time, the Buddha talks a lot about this kind of what I would call the dissolving of a certain idea of self. So I think it's kind of just that Stephen did not expand upon it, but he talks too about it, but in a different, in a different way. I think he was just talking more in terms of the question, like more like a metaphysical question. Does a self really exist? Does a no self really exist? Well, I, I totally agree. It's kind of either one is not, uh, it's kind of just a concept. Because the experience is that you are, the way I would describe it, a flow of condition. So it's kind of more kind of trying to have the experience. So to me, again, I don't talk so much about self or no self, but in terms of like not giving rise to negative self, to negative state, I would say when there is a negative state, then generally there is a lot of selfing. <laughs> there is a lot of me, mine, I want it that way. So I, talk, I was talking more in terms of practical level and not so much of the metaphysical level. Okay. Uh, it's, you see, when we sit in meditation, we can have what I would call different level of thoughts. You can have what I would call light thought, like what Sharda was describing as a train of thought. You start to think about Aunt Elga and five minutes later you're in New York, you don't know how you got there. So you kind of just, you know, and it's kind of like occupying you, but it's kind of light. And you kind of generally come back to it fairly easily. And then you have more what I would call uh, habitual level. You know, you kind of just kind of your mind, you start to plan or you start to ruminate or you start to daydream. You kind of go into kind of certain circle. And then you have intense thinking where you're really locked and it's very intensive. So I think, again, as when we say in meditation, you know, especially on the first day, when you arrive on the first day, generally you sit there, you try to meditate and you're often all over the place. What happened yesterday? What will happen later? So then we talk more, again, more in a practical term of this kind of distraction, the mind which is distracted, which kind of goes here and there. This is one thing. And generally, after a while, it kind of, you know, quietened down. But then you have what kind of like, I would say, trigger thought. Kind of, you could say kind of, you know, the distracting thought, which at the beginning seems relatively harmless. You know, kind of, yeah. And then it can go like into a spiral. I mean, an example I can give is if you wait for somebody. You wait for somebody, nine o'clock, they're not there. 10 past 9, they don't love me. 
9.20, nobody loves me. <laughs> 9.30, I hate the world. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it just starts out, and then, shh. you see. So this is a thing with certain thoughts. Certain thoughts are quite harmless. They rise and pass away. And certain thoughts, then they can really take us to dark places. So again, that's the interest in knowing what am I thinking and where is it going to lead me. When I talk of creative distraction, it's in terms of, like in the, in the Majimanikaya, I think it's number 23, you have what is called the Vitaka Santana Sutta, the five methods, hmm? the 20. Sharda corrected me, 20. And it's a five way to deal with thought, with negative thought. And one of the methods is to turn the attention away from something. Like often we have this idea that when we do awareness practice, we must be aware no matter what. And I would say not. And the Buddha seems to think so too. <laughs> that sometimes it's too intense, it's too difficult, and then it's better to turn our attention away. But if we want to turn our attention away, we need to do it in a creative way. What I would call creative, positive distraction. Doing something which will take your mind away from it, but in a positive manner. So that you, it will generally, I would say, open you up. Change the, kind of the, the, the way you feel just for a little while. And then it might enable you to be with the thing in a different way. So that's what I mean by creative wise distraction is taking the idea of the Buddha of turning the attention away and then trying to kind of put it in a modern context. And it's interesting because you find that in the book of Professor Schwartz, the one who deals with obsessive compulsive behavior. And one of his methods is actually creative distraction, seeing that the thought arise and then creatively distracting oneself. And there was a, a man a wonderful uh, a man saying that the way he distracts himself from his obsessive thought is by doing embroidery. I thought, that's a nice one. <laughs> yes? The, the five things about the, okay, you mean the trigger? Okay, okay, so the first one is uh, you, you, so the thought is kind of generally they are unwholesome, they are uh, triggered by greed, hatred, or confusion. So you have to see the set the scene. So the first one is you turn to the positive. So for example, in the, in the, in the example of the waiting, you're waiting for somebody, and then instead of thinking, they're not coming because they don't love me, you think, ah, Maybe we misunderstood each other. And then you phone the person and she might say, oh, I thought it was next week. So it's kind of turning from the negative to the positive. The next one is to see the peril of the thought, to see the danger of the thought. If I go down that line, I am going to go to a very difficult place. The third one is lack of attention. 
the fourth one is interesting. The fourth one is kind of looking inside the form of the thought. So in a way, questioning the thought itself. What am I thinking? How am I thinking? What is this thought? Could I think something else? And then the last one, psychologists should not listen. You restrate the thought. The, the image, each time you have an image. So the fifth one is to restraint, restraint. But the image is wonderful. He said it's like a, a big man who holds a little man and the little man can... <laughs> and to me, this is not uh, an image of repression. For me, this is an image of power. He, the Buddha is telling us one thought is not more powerful than us. Our whole organism is more powerful than one thought. So it's like if we have a very dangerous thought, is to kind of, you know, not act on it, not follow it. Recently in France, some young men wanted to go on holiday. So they thought, we want to go on holiday, we need money, let's rob a brink van. Let's rob, you know, the van which has lots of money. And, but because they kind of were 15, 16 years old, they did not have uh, access to much kind of things to do these things with. And of course, they tried it and they got arrested. But they had this idea, we need money, let's go and rob a van. And maybe they should have restrained themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and use the thief's method. Well, you see, I think this is why there is five methods. You see, it's very important to see. <laughs> Each, you see, personally, I think what, what I like about the five method is I, I found myself doing it. Although I didn't do Vipassana practice, after 10 years of doing Zen practice, I found I was doing that. So it seems to me that it's not just one, it's different one combined. You need to combine them. You know, positive, with seeing the danger, with possibly creative distraction, with the fourth one is really looking into it. You know, it, it, you know, it's really looking into it. So I think it's kind of like, what is appropriate? And it's back to the conditions. If sometimes we're strong, and we can really look into it. Sometimes we see a thought, and it's a very dangerous thought. And we really don't want to go there. Because we know it's not going to be, you know, I mean, I used to work with um, Foundation for Battered Women, you know, and, uh, you know, if the, the husband thinks, you know, I, I'm going to beat her up, I mean, and if, uh, they, that's not the thought which kind of works very well, thought and feeling kind of, 
you know, and because they could not control themselves. There was no restraint whatsoever. So in a way, I think it's kind of to see what kind of thought is it back to awareness. I mean, in order to do the five things, you need to have awareness. And you need to see what is adapted. So that's where, you know, what is, that's where back to this creative engagement. What is useful here? Turning to the positive, looking into it, restraining it, or doing three together. So I think it kind of adapts. Okay, then the last one, and then we have to stop. John, so um, by referring to the positive way, I mean, uh, how far you go with that? I mean, could you just give your own thoughts and just you can um, make, try and spin it to make it more positive to change your thoughts in a positive way? No, 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 no. I think, again, one has to look. Because you see, this is dangerous. I think you have a good point. This, But that, I don't think that's where the the body mentioned the, the Buddha mentioned because the Buddha is very interesting the Buddha says is the example is like if you had a big peg a carpenter remove a big peg with a very small peg so you give it a go it's like the lady using loving kindness and that turned the situation but we have to be careful of what I would call a not cre- a not creative reframing when you know something is happening, you feel a little upset, and you think, no, 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 I am not upset, I am a Buddhist, I'm not angry, everything is fine. (laughs) Then something happened, and no, 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 I am cool, equanimity, yeah, 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 yes. And then the third time you kind of really explode, and the person wonders, but why why are you exploding? What's the matter? And so then I would say, be careful, you know, to really notice what is going on. Then I would use the fourth one, looking what is really, what is really upsetting me right here, right now? What, what is going on here? So again, it's kind of a back to adapting. It's kind of, you know, it's not kind of like, kind of, you know, today I'm, <laughs> I'm going to use this one or that one. But to me, it's not kind of like, um, it's something, personally, I would say the five method. The vitaka is actually something that naturally arises over time through the meditation, through the cultivating the three training inside our organism. And I would say naturally it arises. So it's not like, ah, now I must look to the positive. <laughs> but it's kind of like, it arises, it arises. And so we have to be careful to not use any of the five as a means to repress, because if you repress, then it will come back kind of uh, in, in a negative way. And I would say the same with restraint, to kind of you, you see, th- you know, this is tough, this is tough, but I will stay here, I will not explode, I will not go and rob a van, because that's not a good idea. <laughs> Again, it's kind of what is the kind of the, the danger of the thought, that's one of the, you know, what is the dangerosity of the thought. Okay, thank you. So now there is some walking.